This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. The thing that's really bubbling up uh, from authors and readers is something that both uh, Leslie and Nate have, have already put their fingers on. Uh, it's, it's questions of justice, um, and uh, especially as they intersect with race and class and access to health care for immigrants. As we look back on 2019 and forward to 2020, our guests are editors of key healthcare ethics journals with an international readership. Gregory Kabnick, editor, the Hastings Center Report, Leslie LeBlanc, managing editor of the Journal of Clinical Ethics, and Nate Hibner, primary editor, Healthcare Ethics USA, and director of ethics at the Catholic Health Association of the United States. What are the issues in healthcare ethics that are impacting ethics committees, health systems, public policy, and patients over the past year? What issues do they expect to continue and emerge within the next year? What are they hearing from authors and readers? What key articles published in their journals in the last year might they recommend to you, our listeners? My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Greg, we'll come to you first. What for you is the story of 2019? Well, I mean, I, I I could probably go in a handful of different directions with it, but I, I really, we really were very interested in the intersection of AI and healthcare, and we had a handful of, of pieces. To some degree, this was something that we were sort of feeding into the pipeline, and it wasn't something that was just kind of spontaneously welling up from our authors. We were kind of going out there and, and um, you know, trying to find out what kind of work people were doing. Sort of trying to get a little bit ahead of it, um, uh, we had uh, a mix of pieces. Um, we had, uh, I think, the the kickoff essay was a piece in maybe January, February, by uh, author named Junaid Nabi, arguing simply that uh, there are a variety of ethical issues in the design of AI and that this is a domain in which bioethicists need to be involved and they actually need to be somehow learning to collaborate with uh, the AI developers and uh, really getting into the nitty-gritty of the of the design of these systems you know there's one of the one of the concerns that's been raised about AI is whether biases uh, discriminatory biases might somehow get baked into the algorithms that are employed in AI. And if it's a if it's a, a deep learning, so-called deep learning kind of AI that relies on looking at the data sets that are out there and there are biases that are present in those data sets, then those biases are going to get perpetuated by by the new AI system. But actually identifying where the biases are, how they, um, w- whether they're present in the original data set, uh, how an algorithm might be making some biased assumptions. This is a very, very difficult matter and is well beyond the ken of the typical AI developer. So uh, Nabi was calling for involvement from bioethics. So that's just kind of like it. That was kind of the kickoff piece. We had a, a, a bit by um, Alex London on the so-called uh, black box problem, which is the problem that 
in a deep learning system, you can't necessarily tell uh, how uh, how it is that the uh, system is making the selections it made, and so there's a problem of of accountability possibly, uh, which is widely been held to be a real moral issue in the development of AI. And London is arguing against this and saying, in fact, in medicine, there are all sorts of things that happen that that work that can't really very well be explained. Uh, Lots of medicines work without being really explained. Uh, So he was simply, uh, he was opening up this this problem to further thinking. And then that piece by Bob Trug, uh, he's he's simply asking a question about the implications of sort of the the technologization, if you wish, of of the doctor patient relationship. You know, will AI will AI give doctors more time to spend with patients and end up, although it's a fancy new technology, end up uh, strengthening, making more human the doctor patient relationship. Or will it just be used to try to uh, speed up uh, clinical care or let doctors see ever more patients? Eric Topol has argued in um, his book, uh, Deep Medicine, I think it's called, uh, uh, that AI is going to have a beneficial effect for the doctor-patient relationship. And we have a a forthcoming piece uh, in the the January-February 2020 issue by... uh, uh, a New Zealand philosopher, Rob Sparrow, arguing that that doesn't take into account the economic forces that are operating on doctors today, and that, in fact, uh, AI is going to be another technology that's uh, forcing doctors to spin around ever faster and see ever more patients and spend ever less time with them. So I think, in a way, for me, the you know I don't have any kind of take-home points about AI, except it is very interesting to see this sort of concern uh, about you know a sense that it could be used well and that it could be an incredibly beneficial technology, but we may not have the the social planning in place really to let it do its thing or to really take advantage of it. And this, for me, ties into a, re- a bigger question that I'm seeing in, uh, w- with respect to a lot of uh, emerging technologies, uh, uh, genetic editing technologies uh, especially, uh, that uh, somehow or other we need to think more about the governance of these things. Used to be, if I were to, if you were to ask me a question about uh, sort of big, big trends in in the report, I, you know, a number of years ago, I, we were publishing a lot of philosophical pieces about the implications for humanness, uh, for human dignity, uh, of uh, new technologies like genetic engineering and stem cell technology, and I haven't. I haven't published any of those. I haven't even received, I think, very many of those uh, as manuscripts recently. The focus now is a little bit more on these big governance questions and how to make sure that they do square, the use of these technologies does square with the public's values and ends up, you know, redounding to the public good. Greg, thanks so much. That's helpful. Leslie, if we were going to go to you next, what were your thoughts? Well, I liked your categorization of looking backward and looking forward. For us, looking backward went back to 1990 when we started. And we looked at 
the big story for us was what was expected in 1990 of clinical ethics consultation and clinical ethics in general. Um, we invited some of the authors from 1990 to reflect on where they had been, you know, Mark Siegler, and where they saw clinical ethics consultation headed. And then for the rest of the year, uh, our authors and our readers were very concerned with consent and decision-making, certainly age-old considerations, and still really valid and lively conversations now for um, children, for adolescents, for vulnerable populations such as people who have waxing and waning capacity, people who are living on the street, um, people at the end of life. Those were um, our major focus this year in how to best work with those populations. And Nate, we'll come to you next. What for you is are, are some of the stories of 2019? What do you think? I think Greg is, is very spot on around the use of technology, particularly artificial intelligence, but also big data. I think that's always been quite of um, a lot of buzz this last year, and I'm already expecting it to be a major topic for this current year. In fact, we've had a few requests for an upcoming colloquium that we host every year with our ethicists, and a lot of them want to talk about big data. Our organization, CHA, has also just put out a podcast uh, with a Dr. Pitt, who's a neuroradiologist, and it's all on this same question, how do we do big data appropriately? And he posed a very interesting philosophical question of, would you be willing to give up some of your personal data if it meant living five years longer? And I think that's a really direct question and something that not only do ethicists are currently battling with, uh, can care providers and systems, but also what I think our patients and the patient's families are going to have to face going forward. The other thing that I found within our own journal was that a lot of the questions that were being raised really challenged fundamental teachings um, within our profession. And it fits very well with the podcast theme for today of looking forward, looking back, that some of the cases, some of the new trends, some of the technologies that are being developed today, we have to ask, is that something that we are prepared for? Do we have the right tools in our toolbox? Do we have to look back maybe even further than we did to find those particular resources that we can then answer some of these questions? And so many of our articles that dealt with gender dysphoria, even collaborative arrangements, questions uh, regarding CRISPR technology, were unable to simply take a teaching and apply it, but rather were really posing the question of, is this teaching still appropriate, or what else can we take from our tradition or our own philosophical understanding of ethics to answer some of these in order to prepare ourselves for where we're going? Each of you are in conversation with authors and readers continually. I'm just interested what you're seeing and what you're hearing there. A lot of our authors who are working as clinical ethics consultants seem uh, to be sort of almost split in half in that many of them are professional clinical ethics consultants, as opposed to perhaps clinicians who were volunteers, um, philosophers who would weigh in 
um, because of their concern with applied ethics. Um, these are people with MAs and sometimes PhDs in clinical ethics consultation. So they're very, very concerned with quantitative data, which in my opinion is a little bit different for this profession. That is, they're logging their consult notes into the uh, electronic medical record and they're clicking off different topics and then they're doing analysis of which topics trend in their hospital or other institution. So that's really very different. And then, too, there are concerns with the numbers of um, consults they have, along with keeping track in the EMR. They feel that they need to justify their existence um, financially, which is, I think, really, really different. That's a big concern of the younger generation of clinical ethics consultants that I see. People are not so much arguing about uh, the lack of privacy from an EMR. That seems in many cases to be accepted. That, those are kind of some of the changes I'm seeing. Right. Almost a concern for efficiency of time, of, of being able to uh, show demonstrable impact. Yeah, years ago, John Fletcher tried really hard to um, demonstrate the financial importance of clinical ethics consultation. And um, some people felt that that was successful, but a lot of his peers said, what a really bad idea. You know, why would you want to do that? Um, so it's interesting to me, since I've got a long memory and a big archive, to um, <laughs> see how the thoughts are changing around that topic. Greg, uh, you know, conversations with authors and readers. What's taking your attention in those conversations? I think that the the thing that's really bubbling up uh, from authors and readers is something that both uh, Leslie and Nate have, have already put their fingers on. Uh, it's it's questions of justice, um, and uh, especially as they intersect with race and class and access to healthcare for immigrants. Uh, we had somebody come to us over the course of the last year proposing a, a series of essays. This is Lisa Eckenweiler, oh, yeah. philosopher, uh, proposing a series of essays on uh, access to healthcare and um, um, and sort of um, effects on immigrants of uh, you know whatever happens to them in the healthcare context. And we've now published two or three things out of that series. Uh, we, uh, we also had a, a case study was about, uh, it's called North of Home Obligations to Families of Undocumented Patients. This is back in the uh, January, February of last year. And uh, it was about what to do with patients who hail originally from some other country, have families there. What are the responsibilities of the healthcare provider to get in touch with uh, family uh, located somewhere over a border? And one of the essays that we got through Lisa Eckenweiler was about patient transfers abroad. She calls it was a piece called um, uh, "The New Wallet yeah. Biopsy and Patient Transfer Abroad," I think. And it was about um, the um, the phenomenon that sometimes occurs of transferring an undocumented patient out of uh, a healthcare institution back to home country, partly as a way of, of, you know, of saving costs. I don't know how often this actually occurs, but, it, but, but this was, uh, it was, it was a topic that this author wanted to, um, 
bring to readers' attention. And and then we've had a we've had a handful of other pieces uh, that have looked at various uh, questions about you know very fundamental, very basic questions about access to healthcare. A couple of the items in a column that we call in practice, which is basically um, about healthcare narratives, usually from the uh, physician's perspective, but it could be from a nurse's perspective or a social worker's perspective, or it could be from a patient's perspective. Uh, but we had had a couple of, of uh, doctors write about providing care and uh, write about the the binds that they find themselves in and when they're able to provide one kind of care, but not quite what they would provide in uh, if the patient had wow. had the resources. Uh, there was a, a piece by um, Joseph uh, Glasho, uh, the stress test, that was um, uh, about about exactly this issue. And we just uh, right now are publishing a piece in the January February 2020 issue uh, called Equity Care. Uh, doctors describing making a, a a house call actually finding new medical technology in his patient's living room. Uh, and he's wondering about the the impact on the patient of having all this technology sitting around. The idea, the goal of the technology is that it's giving the, the patient better care, saving time, preventing hospitalizations, but it's also making her fearful and constraining her and she doesn't, and, and, uh, it's, it's sort of overwhelming her, and he finds that he just he's, he just sits down and he has conversations with her about her treatment goals, what it is that she actually wants to be able to do over the next couple of weeks or month, and and uh, and then he has a he works with her to form a, a treatment plan, and he finds that this low tech approach is more effective than the provision of all the technology that's sitting about. But he has has to bill it as, or has to list it as charity huh. care, sort of unbillable time. Uh, and he proposes that uh, it really shouldn't be understood that way. It ought to be. He proposes calling it equity care. So you know, so th- there's there's uh, there's ongoing attention to uh, the big fancy technologies like AI. But in a way, the thing that's really been really been coming to us from authors and readers over the last year has been uh, a concern about uh, the big questions, uh, really, of social justice. With respect to readers and authors, Nate, having listened to Greg and Leslie, what what's coming up for you in those conversations with readers and authors? You know, Greg's point around the social justice issues that healthcare is facing, I and mean, he brought up the wallet biopsy, or some have called medical repatriation, if you want to use a kind of uh, a moral term, you might say, you know, it raises, it really puts a lot of problems or a lot of challenges, not only to medical providers, but also to ethicists. I think they're now being tasked to enter into topics that they may not have been trained uh, to enter or that they just historically have not had to address in a very formal way. You know, it's less those issues of bioethics around informed consent or medical surrogate decision-making or treatment plans and family care meetings. But it's about those social issues. And I think it will only continue to rise as we could, as we see the social determinants of health really driving the way that we provide health. If our medical organizations are really have 
a mission of the well-being of their patients and their community. They're being asked to do more outside of the hospital, whether that's charity care, community benefit. Um, Many of our systems now are um, involved in housing projects and access to food and food deserts. And the ethicists are being asked to weigh in. Um, They're being asked to help the decision makers prioritize some sort of social issue above others. They're being asked to weigh in on those um, undocumented uh, patients and the treatment plans that we might be able to provide for them. They're being asked by media representatives to explain those decisions. They're being asked by legislators to come and advocate one way or another. Um, Really, the ethicist is is now a, a much broader role than I think it used to be. You know, another issue that people are really trying to trying to look at is uh, what beyond the clinical um, way that we provide care is really at the core of of who we are in healthcare. Um, and I don't just mean those social determinants of health, but also just other other service lines that we may be providing, such as insurance plans, telehealth, things that because of their, I don't want to say newness, but rather a closer examination of how they fit into the mission of the different healthcare organizations and how do we best apply our ethical and moral standards to them, um, continue to be asked of us uh, within our own journal um, and in our own organization. So those are just some some of the things, but I think Greg's points around the social coming into the healthcare is is certainly a high priority and is something that's really beginning to drive a lot of great conversation out there. We've taken a look over our shoulder. We've even looked at perhaps maybe current state. Just want to transition to uh, what are you anticipating in the future? Nate, if you don't mind, we might go to you first on this one. Yeah, so when I was thinking about this future question of 2020, I mean, I think obviously the first thing that comes to anybody's mind when you say 2020 is the election. Um, you know, not in any way of a, a political statement, but rather it's going to really drive the next four years around that healthcare reform question. Are we going to uh, once again go back and look at how the ACA is uh, being utilized? Are we going to uh, try to scrap and do something new? Or are we going to try to modify? I mean, those are major impactful questions uh, for anybody that's doing healthcare uh, in this country. Another on the other side uh, from legislation is the judicial. I mean, we have a lot of cases out there right now around conscientious objection. It raises a lot of questions about the way we provide care, either individually, I mean, individual conscience, but also this question of organizational conscience. You know, where do those conflicts arise? When do we have to compromise? How does the organization respond to those challenges, to those conflicting values? So those are two. I think the final one would certainly be, I mean, that data question is continuing to to be a buzz and not just in healthcare. When we look at the way that technology companies are being questioned by the Senate and the House, the way that the European Union is impacting in their data protection laws. California's data protection laws are going to raise a lot of interesting questions around HIPAA, whether HIPAA needs completely uh, redone, whether 
Um, data of the medical variety should be treated more like the data of everything else in our lives, my shopping history, my browsing history, and the way that all those data sets actually begin to interact rather than being siloed. I think that's going to be a major question, um, not only in the regulatory front, but in the ethics front, um, and in the way that we're going to be able to provide care in the future. So I think those are three of the major things that I anticipate in, in this upcoming year. Greg, we might go to you next on this one. What what are you anticipating in 2020? Well, I'm ex- I'm expecting a little bit like uh, uh, Nate Nate mentioned that uh, bioethics is is reacting to some of the uh, the big stories that are making headlines out there in, in papers, and I, I I'm anticipating that we're going to see a little bit more of that. I think that there's going to be uh, an ever greater turn toward uh, thinking about questions of of race and how to uh, somehow rebalance the scales. We have a, a, a piece uh, that's forthcoming, actually in days, in the January-February issue by Laura Specker-Sullivan, a philosopher on trust in healthcare. And she points out that trust is vital to good care, that trust in physicians is vital to good care, and that mistrust distrust of uh, physicians by uh, American blacks is an entirely uh, rational, appropriate, and, and justified kind of response. And then she asks, so how do you, how do you, uh, how do you change the game a little bit? How do you, how do you create trust? And, and, um, and she argues that the burden can't be on the patient. It has to be on the physician that's also happens to be where the the levers are the things that you can actually try to adjust to create trust and she argues that the the physician needs to in certain kinds of of uh, relationships to take some risks with uh, black patients and try to show an understanding of of where they're coming from and acknowledge the reasonability of, of the perspective that they may have to try to sort of anticipate, uh, I, I think, you know, you know begin to, in a, in a conversation, begin to sort of elicit expressions of distrust and, and you know, give, uh, give patients a chance to explore it. An extremely difficult and touchy kind of conversation to have, but seems very important. We've got a couple of uh, commentaries that we've got on it that seem to be um, – uh, corroborating her perspective and adding to it in different ways. I think uh, there's going to be broadening the lens even more. Uh, there, there's going to be ever more attention to the polarization. I think you asked last time, Kevin, we, we seem to be uh, having a hard time these days having conversations. Uh, and what can we what can we be doing to get better at that? And there might be there's I know from readers and authors that there's interest in this kind of question, and it, there might be something in bioethics that, that that can be learned from bioethics about having conversations. The, the field is founded on conversations uh, across disciplines and perspectives and uh, moral gaps, and maybe we can um, draw on some of these resources in bioethics to try to uh, shed some light on the idea of public deliberation and, and civic deliberation at a national level. And then I think, uh, I, I know that there's going to be some stuff on, uh, on, on, 
uh, genetic information um, as uh, uh, the possibility of whole genome screening uh, comes online, gets ever cheaper. There's an idea out there in the world that ever more genetic information is always a good thing. Uh, and then uh, one of the questions for the for healthcare is uh, whether that's actually the case, and 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 what what to do with it. Uh, we had um, uh, a supplement, uh, I think, a couple years ago now on on newborn screening and and whether and how to incorporate um, uh, genetic screening and whole genome screening into it, and it was somewhat uh, cautionary about that. We are going to have a, a supplement sometime in the next year on implications for parents and uh, adult patients themselves of, of learning genetic information about about themselves, about their condition, uh, the benefits of it and uh, the burdens of it, and how even you do research into figuring out what the uh, implications for patients are. Um, so uh, that's, that's, a, that's another topic that I think we'll be seeing more of. And Leslie, for you, as uh, as you look into uh, the crystal ball of 2020, what 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 are you seeing? What do you anticipate seeing? Well, we, for the past decade, have been working on uh, the topic of moral distress. And at the beginning of that time, it was documenting it and arguing that it exists. Lately, more of the articles that we have, for example, um, in the last issue of the journal, we had um, self-inflicted moral distress, opportunity for a fuller exercise of professionalism by Jeff Berger, Ann Hamrick, and um, Elizabeth Epstein, in which they argue that um, one solution to the problem of moral distress in um, clinicians, be they doctors, nurses, social workers, is that professional societies need to come to their aid in defining their roles better. And um, we talk about social issues that affect um, medicine. The authors we work with and the readers we hear from, I think, seem to be less involved with how they're going to shape social issues, although there still is a policy discussion, but often are talking about the burnout they feel when they're working with um, patients who don't have the resources that will allow them to get the care they need, or patients who are being um, dismissed from the hospital when perhaps they don't have the social support they need working with people who are here illegally and what their duty is to society versus to the patient, whether they're going to break the law as they see it or do what's right for their patient as they see it. So we continue to have articles talking about how those stressors affect clinicians and how they're trying to remedy those problems. Um, our publisher, Norman Quist, once quipped, although I think accurately, and said, if you're in medicine and you don't feel moral distress, maybe you're not doing it right. Oh, and then with conscientious objection, we are having a lot of articles submitted to us um, that seem to be, golly, I don't want to uh, exaggerate, a, a howl of pain, but there's not always a lot of analysis. So that's a, that's a stressor that we have right now, is we'd like to publish more on conscientious objection. That includes more ethical analysis.
appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.